The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, the host of Just Love. I'm here with Tom Dobbins, who does a great job every week in lining up guests who can enlighten us about what is going on in the world. And based upon that conversation, try to bring our Catholic values to see how we should assess what's going on and, you know, what we should think about them, the opinions we should form and any actions that we should take in light of those. So um, this week, we again are going to be talking about a range of topics and, um, you know, as we are uh, kind of coming out of summer, um, you know, we're moving in where school is opening again and a lot of new things are happening in the world. The fall is coming, the leaves change. But I got to tell you, from our perspective here in New York, we're not much out of summer because it's still very, <laughs> very hot and very, very uh, humid here. Um, so a lot of... A lot of that, you know, we're not really at the end of of summer from that perspective. But everybody's got a different opinion of that. Tom, for you, when does summer end? Summer ends for me, Monsignor. I'm a traditionalist. I say summer ends on September 21st. Because, you know, usually, as you had mentioned, we get these little hot spells. And sometimes they go into October. But we almost always have kind of a warm September. So I'm I'm old school. I go by the geological time. And I say September 21st. So that's usually when I when I count my summer ending. <laughs> okay. I I tend to be a Labor Day person. Okay. That Labor Day is when, you know, I kind of consider summer ending. Um, but <clears throat> I also recognize that, you know, according to the calendar, it is the end of se- September. So, Tom, how would you assess your summer this year? My summer was great. Uh, I did. I, I I think I told you once here, I did my assignment. I went down, I was down at the Jersey shore this summer and I had my ice cream. Good. So I went out, <laughs> I, there's this great ice cream shop down in, uh, down in Tom's river that I went to had this great uh, cherry vanilla ice cream, but it was great. I got to the beach. I got to the park. I did a little traveling. Um, I went to Atlanta uh, and I went to Washington DC. So it was good. I had, I had a very, enjoyable summer and it wasn't too hot which is which is always good for me do you so like the beach i, do you like I the love beach? the beach i love the beach yeah i'm oh. a, I, our family was always kind of beach people so even when i was much younger dad and mom used to take us out to montauk uh so we would go out there and then we went to the hampton bays for for a great portion of our family's life we would always go out to the beach so we were always beach people and uh but i used to get to the mountains too because i had a, a dear friend uh Kathy Downey, who used to take her family would take us up to the mountains. So I used to get both. I used to get both. Now I just get okay. both. <laughs> and, and how did you how did you deal with the sun? Did you like the sun and sunburn, suntan? Well, when I was younger, uh, the sun was and my father came. You know, this was like the old Bronx Irish Catholic, I think, when senior. They would go out and then uh, they would get into the sun. They get burned, and then my great aunt would tell my. Uh, and she told this to my mother. She said, the best cure for a sunburn is to go out and get more. <laughs> so that's, ah. that used to happen when I was a kid. But I had a little bout with a little scare of skin cancer about a year ago. So I'm being much more cautious now once here. So I'm being very careful with the sun. At the beach this year, I looked like Lawrence of Arabia. I was I was totally covered over. I had hats and I had, I had towels all over me. So I kind of did that. <laughs> well, um, yeah, my skin is also fair. So... Whenever I go out in the sun for any extended period of, of time, I do tend to put on a lot of sunscreen to protect myself. So anyway, so so Tom, uh, one we're you know we're kind of around Labor Day, a little bit after Labor Day, but in New York, um, the Labor Mass, the Labor Parade, you know, occurs um, the week after Labor Day for. A reason when people are kind of back and they're more able to participate in that. 
So why don't we speak with our first guest? Our first guest is um, Allison Kobe, who is the production editor and member of the Scholastic uh, Union. And we'll speak to her about what's going on this Labor Day at Scholastic. And we'll kind of learn a little bit about what is going on. Allison Colby, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Uh, you're welcome. That's great. Um, so uh, give our listeners a little bit of sense of yourself, your background, um, how you got to what you're doing now. Well, I've been working in publishing for over 30 years. I've worked, I started at Time Incorporated at Discover Magazine. I worked at Life. I left there and I went to the Village Voice. Um, I left there and freelanced for a number of years. And that's how I ended up at the New York Times as a production manager at the Style Magazine, which is called The Tea. And I left there, and I've landed at Scholastic. Ah, and how long have you been at Scholastic? Three years now. Okay. Yeah. And um, so maybe tell our listeners a little bit what Scholastic is. Some may not know what it is. Well, it is an educational uh, materials. Well, most people know Scholastic from things like book fairs and magazines in the classroom. I used to get Scholastic books when I was a kid. You know, they they would have the book fairs. You would get a catalog. You could pick your books and then they would be shipped to you. So they still do that. And they also, uh, I work primarily on magazines. They have over 25 magazines for all age levels, you know, from pre-kindergarten to uh, high schoolers. Um, and you get a magazine every month and there are a lot of teacher materials that go with that and student worksheets. So um, I work as a production editor on two of the magazines. Hey, so you're pretty busy, I bet. Yes, we're busy during the school year and, you know, publishing has, it has highs and lows like every industry. So, you know, there are busy times and there are less busy times. But now is the busy time. Okay. Um, so um, now let's move on. Since we are around Labor Day, um, you are part of the the union at Scholastic, correct? Yes. Okay. And so tell us kind of what's going on, because I think there are negotiations going on, but the contract expired. So yes. give us a sense of what's going on there. Well, our contract expired in May of 2022, and we've been in negotiations since then. Um, and the union there actually started in 1937 and is part of the News Guild, which is part of the Communications Workers of America. And the News Guild has over 6,000 media workers in the New York area. Um, so it's, it's a, a big union with a lot of um, media workers in it, and we are media workers. So we have over 80 people in our union at Scholastic, and you know they're all they're all centered in the magazines because that's where the the union actually started in 1937 when Scholastic was very small. So the, the union has not extended into other areas of the company. Um, and Scholastic is a billion-dollar company, and they have offices and printing presses and staff all over the world. So it's not a tiny company. They have over 10,000 employees. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty big. Um, so we're facing a lot of issues as a union at Scholastic. So I know a little bit about unions is... Is there a union for all 10,000 or is it a subsection or some job titles? Right. Well, I'm mostly familiar with the union at the New York City office, which okay. is which we're strictly editorial. So okay. it is it is the people who work on the magazines who are unionized. 
As for the rest of the company, I honestly don't know. Uh, I'm sure that there are Teamsters who work, uh, you know, carting our boxes around right. <laughs> and things like that. But I'm not familiar with any other union activity in the company. I, I haven't looked into that. Okay. So tell me a little about the editorial uh, union and kind of what's going on in those negotiations. So what's going on there is that, as I said, our, our contract has expired and uh, the union has put forth several proposals. Um, we are working on codifying the health and safety uh, a, agreement that we worked with the company to, to agree upon during COVID. We're working to get that into the contract um, to to make sure that the health and safety of the workers is protected. You know, COVID is still out there. People are still getting sick. Mm -hmm. um, we're also working for better wages. So, you know, the company, this happens at all unions. The company offers one thing and the union proposes another. We're working on trying to get a minimum wage of $65,000 a year, uh, which the New York Times also had negotiated about. Right now at Scholastic, it's 60. So those are some of the things we want out of this contract, as well as right now the company is saying that they will not give us retro pay backdated to May of 22. So, you know, that that's a bit beyond. Right. Yeah. So we're speaking with Allison Colby, who is production editor and member of the Scholastic Union. Uh, we're speaking about their current contract uh, negotiations. Now, you know, from what you have described, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I mean, it seems like you're continuing to negotiate about this. Yes. Yes. So, you know, it, it's a process. Right. It's a back and forth. You know, one of the things that uh, around the health and safety issue is also remote work. So the world has changed since COVID and we have a hybrid work uh, thing going on at work where you can come in as needed. Um, you can set your own uh, based on your job and with, in conversation with your manager. And we're trying to get that into the contract as well so that Scholastic can't just say, okay, everybody, come back to the office five days a week, because mm -hmm. not all of us can come back to the office five days a week. Yeah. So that's have, a big conversation. Yeah. Have have you been involved in previous contract negotiations at Scholastic? No. I just started there uh three years ago and as I started in January of 2020, and then within a, a matter of six to eight weeks, the pandemic right. showed up and ruined everything. Yeah, that boy, that was just really a very, very kind of difficult time. I mean, yes. I know I'll just share how naive I was, you know, when we heard like at least for maybe a week before the actual close down happened, that it was a possibility and people were kind of testing it and seeing what was was happening. And I know I was talking to some people say, well, yeah, OK, maybe we'll close down for a couple of weeks. And I don't think any of it. Well, let me just say me. I was naive. No way did I think it was going to be like a three month or, you know, almost complete close down and then partial reopening for the next six months or a year. Yes. And that happened at Scholastic too. And it was interesting to me because I had come from the New York times where they have a whole separate newsroom set up and they have a whole bunch of extra equipment in case of like not being able to come to the building. They had yeah. all kinds of remote work setups and at Scholastic, it was very. Um, it was it was kind of a a, a band aid situation, but we all made it happen. 
And, you know, it, it came together very quickly and we went remote very quickly. And we would like some acknowledgement and compensation that we, we got, we did not stop working right. and we continued to publish the magazines and continued to put out material. And because we, so many places went remote in, in school situations, we had to create more materials that were digital. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, in a lot of places, it's, um, it's a little bit kind of challenging to, you know, I know in kind of the nonprofit world, which is different than scholastic, uh, scholastic, you know, we know people just went, went through extraordinary uh, stuff that was there. And, um, you know, we tried to do a little bit extra in compensation, but I know fully that um, the extraordinary um, lengths to which people went were, um, were, you know, we tried to do what we could, but it didn't fully recognize all the extra work that, that we, that we did. And something that is probably a little bit different than the editorial um, people you're dealing with at Scholastic, but some of our people just remote work wasn't a possibility. If you were, if you were driving food to a food pantry, if you were caring for somebody in a residence, you just couldn't do that you know, remotely, if, if... Yes, well, book fairs did not happen. Yep, that's true. So... That is, yeah, that is that is true. So, you know, let me ask you a little bit, um, you know, to ask you a, a little bit of a broader uh, question. You know, you're continuing to negotiate, engaging in collective bargaining with the company, and, okay, you still have major differences... Yes. And you haven't worked them out, but you're still talking about them and trying to work them out. What I've been reading and, and observing is that probably in the past summer or year or so, a lot of situations, maybe more so than in recent years, unions and management haven't been able to work them out or even keep talking and that there are there are more strikes than there had been, you know, a number of years ago. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? Well, there's there's always capitalism. Right, okay. <laughs> the capital C. But, um, I, you know, that's interesting that you, you, you're, you're saying, you know, it's funny because I've been observing the same thing. And I've, you know, worked, I've been a worker, since the eighties and I've been in and out of unions and I've worked as a freelancer. My father was in the pilots union and I, I've read a lot of stories recently about negotiation successes with the pilots unions, with the flight attendants unions. I know that the UAW is going into some very uh, fraught negotiations right now. The UPS workers the, got a great contract. People, the New York Times worked it out after not having a contract for over two years. Many media companies in the New York area, there have been a number of, of small uh, media companies that have signed on to join unions, in particularly the News Guild. Um, I think that, you know, we're in a conversation. So it takes, everybody has to give a little and get a little. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about, in particular at Scholastic, we're not talking about kneecapping an entire country like the, the UPS strike could have done that, right? right? Or an airline pilot strike could do that. Uh, we're talking about a small group of workers who are asking for fairly reasonable things like a remote work policy that... Right that basically says, no, the company can't just say everybody back to the office on a whim um, that accounts for the health and safety of the workers. We're saying we would like 
a, an increase in our wages that that reflects what's gone on in the last two years, uh, which is not easy. And some of us have started at, you know, very paltry salaries. So um, they're not livable wages in New York City. I know New York City is a super special case, but mm -hmm. you have to pay people enough so that they don't have to look for extra work. So I think overall in America, we're seeing this. People don't get paid enough money to pay their rent. Yeah. And, and that's very true here. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I'll, I'll just put in a plug for one of the things we've been working on at Catholic Charities with regard to the rent. You know, we've there's there are a lot of programs out there. And some of the standard would say that, you know, people shouldn't be paying more than 30% of their of their salary, their income in rent. So one of the things we've proposed is, okay, if you're at a you know, medium income level um, and, you, and you're paying more than 30% of your rent, well, why can't you take that off your taxes? Why can't it be a tax credit? So we've been working with the New York State Legislature to say, all right, um, let's say, you know, middle, medium level income people, if they're paying a lot of rent, more than 30 percent, then let's give them a tax break. That so would they, be, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, sometimes tax breaks are a little bit more palatable from a political point of view than vouchers or things like things like that right. I mean, we give we we give people the ability to deduct the interest on their house mortgage payments so maybe we should give renters something that they can use also well you know the former president did do away with our state um the salt right thing so i would hope that that would be reinstated eventually yeah. so yeah. you know it is it is still the bottom line is still people are corporations in particular, large corporations have the money to pay a living wage and they aren't. Yep. And, yep. and, and that is happening where I work. And luckily I'm a member of a union so that we can collectively say that is unacceptable. Yep. Also, you know, Scholastic has a tremendous credo about treat you know, treating people in a, as right. valued and, and dignified individuals, and they're not treating their workers that way. Right. They're, you know, basically by saying no, no retro pay, they're basically sticking a finger in our eye. Um, and how does yeah. that advance the conversation? Yeah. So, you know, obviously, you're still negotiating. You're yes. still around the, the bargaining table. But sometimes in order to kind of raise awareness, you have to do things that are public yes. to get people's way. You just participated in a rally. Can you tell us about the the rally that happened not too long ago? Yes. So it's a bit it's it's I have to say it's a little challenging to get people to come to the office. But people came to the office about. There were uh, a lot of us do work remotely in other states, and we got over 30 members to come who showed up to work to the office wearing their union T-shirts. And we it was a lunch. It was a lunch hour rally specifically aimed at the issues of retro pay and remote work. And we marched around in a circle in front of the building with signs and we handed out flyers to passersby because that is a big block in Soho for photographing and Finelli's right. is right at the corner. So, and we had a great time. We, we all got to make a lot of noise together and, right. and it was an expression of solidarity and we did it. We, we, and it was effective. The yeah. company moved a, a little in our right. direction as right. a result of that. So and, Allison, Allison, permit me just a little bit of humor is 
you made people come into the office. Well, we didn't to, make to yeah. lobby for remote work. <laughs> yes, we didn't make them. We asked. We did ask. Very as nice a little people. bit of a joke. And a lot of people, I get it. A lot yeah. of people did. A lot of people do already come in on Wednesday because that's a day right. when a lot of people come in. But you know, there's it's still an issue. Yeah. So uh, some of us live farther away than others. I happen to live a 10 minute bike ride away from the office, but other people live in New Jersey and it costs a lot of money to go from point A to point B, especially if you're not making a lot of money to start with. Yep. Uh, You know, on this remote work thing, um, I don't know how it's all going to wind up. I don't think we're ever going to go back to exactly how we were before. Right. But but I I kind of want to see five years from now because, you know, at Catholic Charities, we have, we kind of talk about a 3-2 policy where we want people in the office three days. And, you know, I'm old. So to me, you got up in the morning and you went to work, you know, to stay home and do work. It like, it just, now I did it during COVID and I, know know about it but it's just like you get up you get dressed you go to work and so i want to see how this all kind of plays out maybe well four or five years from now absolutely well if you consider i too am old i'm 63 um and you're a youngster compared with me (laughs) (laughs) okay but i uh i would like to say that i it it makes a person a little nutty to sit in their apartment by themselves, if they are by themselves, day after day after day. I love going to the office. I go, I am committed to going two days a week. And I go in two days a week. And I find myself oftentimes going in a third day. Now, it's not as if the office is staffed the way it was when I started. I also feel, you know, a, a, a little bit like I missed out on something because I did start two months before the pandemic began. And so I wasn't, acclimated to the whole office culture there so it's it's a very curious situation yeah, yeah. And, I, and I know that there are sometimes if I'm working on a particular project I can be more productive at home Absolutely. because I have fewer distractions yes I I also I appreciate that too and but I also know that for me sometimes going to the office helps me work more efficiently so i do that yeah it's you know i like i said i think you know this is one of those areas where kind of a rigid position oh no i can do this all from home or you're yes. not working if you're not in the office five days a week is about well, what's interesting to me is that currently scholastic has a flexible policy that you can work out with your manager and it's working it's working we're all productive we're all working professionals getting the job done and they want to have the option to say no that's not working everybody come in and that doesn't you know that's not gonna that how is that productive yep yeah it's you know and i think you know at Catholic Charities, we have a lot of workers, and I think we just have an incredibly dedicated, hardworking staff who who kind of give you more than yes what's expected. Yes. But I think in every place, you know, you, you sometimes have a few people who maybe don't meet those standards. Well, that's and, that's interesting that you say that. I mean, it, it's um, this is the first job I've had at a publication that has yeah. not had advertising involved with it. And yeah. it makes for a very different uh, atmosphere as well as mission. So the mission is educating children, getting children excited about reading. Right. And everybody there, every all the staffs I work with are on that mission. And that's yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I was going to say, Alice, Allison, was... You know what I said, but in in almost any workforce, no matter what the mission is, there may be a couple of people who who maybe aren't kind of living up to those same 
high standards. And right. sometimes, sometimes I think we go out of our way to make rules for the handful of people who might be causing a little bit of problems. Yes. And so we got to balance it because, yes, you know, you know, so anyway, but listen, you have been so, so great as a guest. I wish you the best of luck in thank continuing you. your negotiations. And thank you for that in um, very happy post Labor Day uh, to you and to all your workers. My pleasure. I hope I see everybody at the Labor Day parade. Well, you'll see me and I'll see you. Excellent. So make sure you uh, make sure you wave and make sure you come up to me. Okay. Okay. Allison Colby, who is a worker. She is the production editor at Scholastic and also a member of the union there. Um, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We again talk about those things going on in the world. And we talk about how we might view them through our lens of our Catholic social teaching. We're around Labor Day. Labor Day, I know, passed. But in some cities, like New York City, it's celebrated um, with a parade on the sad day after Labor Day. It gives people a little bit of chance to get reacclimated. So um, we're going to be celebrating the Labor Parade tomorrow. And I also mentioned that uh, we have an annual mass for labor. And Tom is very helpful and instrumental in kind of organizing that. And we'll have probably over 500 labor leaders who will be at mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral tomorrow morning before the parade. And, you know, I, I mentioned that that's pretty significant because one of our Catholic uh, values is the dignity of work and the dignity of the worker. And so there's been a long connection between Catholic, the Catholic Church and the labor movement. And to be honest, in some places, that relationship has not been as strong in recent years as, as it has been in the past. So I'm pretty, really happy that we have been able to keep it in uh, New York. Now, New York is a town which there is, um, a, you know, a nice proportion of labor union members, but I'm delighted that we've been able to keep that kind of spiritual and religious connection to it, that it's not just a humanitarian thing. It is rooted in our religious value of the dignity of a human person made in God's image and likeness and work as being constitutive of what it means to be a human being. So, Tom, let me say, for the sake of all of our listeners, let me say a word of thanks to you for your efforts in organizing the annual Labor Mass, which um, probably when some of you are listening, um, is going on right as you are, um, as you are kind of listening to our broadcast. With that, let's go to our next guest. Lydia Stazen is the executive director and chair of the working group to end homelessness at the United Nations. Um, she's with the Institute of Global homelessness. And let me say a word of thanks. Lydia Stason, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, so what give our give our little our listeners a little bit of sense of your background and how you kind of have gotten into what you're doing now. 
Yeah, sure. So I've been involved with the issue of homelessness for a long time. Um, when I moved to Chicago about 15 years ago, I was working in a completely different um kind of issue area around workforce development. And it was my first time really living in an urban environment and seeing um, the number of people that I passed by on my way to work as I would, you know, walk from my home to the train, from my train to work and back and um, really felt the need to get involved with the issue of homelessness. Um, and so began volunteering with organizations and then eventually um, made my way into paid positions with organizations that that dealt with the issue of homelessness. And so um, for the past four years, I've had the really great honor of serving as the executive director of the Institute for Global Homelessness, which is housed at DePaul University here in Chicago. So very connected to um, the sort of uh, Vincentian charism of um, helping those who are who are on the margins of society. Lydia, thank you for that. And tell us then, since you brought it up. Uh, tell us about the Institute for Global Homelessness. What What's that? the focus of that? Yeah, so um, the Institute of Global Homelessness has been around for about 10 years now. We were founded in 2014, and um, our strategies around the issue of homelessness are um, threefold, and we use the tagline, see it, solve it, share it, to describe what we do. So in that first category, um, see it, you know, homelessness can be both a visible and an invisible problem. And so we need to have definitions of homelessness. We need to have measurement of the number of people experiencing different kinds of homelessness so that we really have a good understanding of um, the size and scope of the issue so we can know if interventions are being successful over time. Um, our second area of work, Solve It, um, is our Vanguard program where we have formal partnerships with um, 18 different uh, cities, states, countries around the world which have set particular goals in addressing homelessness and we um, help them make progress towards those goals. And then finally, um, sharing it, our knowledge sharing activities, what's working to end homelessness, where is it working? Why is it working? Um, what's not working? We believe we learn as much from failure as we do from success. And how do we kind of share this information with growing and growing um, circles of, of people who care about the issue? Lydia, thank you so much for, for sharing that. You know, I think in the United States, um, as you just, um, you know, in a personal way recounted, I think a lot of us think of homelessness as something in our city because we see a man or a woman, you know, sleeping in the doorway of a building. We see somebody who is panhandling. We see somebody who obviously looks like they're troubled in, in a variety of ways. And that's kind of the face of homelessness to us. What I'd like you to maybe speak a little bit about, and, and I would put myself in this category, I never thought about global homelessness. You know, and you know, once I saw the word heard the word, I said, Oh, okay, I'm I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about this. So kind of when we think about global homelessness, what how do you think about that? How do you describe that? What's the scope of what we're talking about? Yeah, it was a question that I also had when I first took this job. My experience had been in homelessness here in Chicago. And so I was really curious to learn um, what is homelessness like in other parts of the world. And what we have found um, is that really the drivers of homelessness are similar all around the world. We're talking about uh, poverty and inequality. We're talking about family breakdown, domestic violence. Um, we're, we're talking about um, physical or mental disabilities. We're talking about um, the impact of, you know, systemic racism and discrimination towards certain um, groups of people who are marginalized. So these core drivers are the same um, everywhere around the world. I remember colleagues from Mongolia reached out to us and I thought, how can we help on the issue of homelessness in Mongolia? What is it like in Mongolia? And as they described what homelessness was like there, it read very similarly to the profile of people experiencing homelessness in Chicago. So um, that gives us great optimism that we can come up with common strategies and common solutions to address the issue, which um, is still the same at its core. So let me let me let me probe that a little bit. 
Um, is there, have you found from the research that you've done that homelessness takes on a different um, either dimension or a different uh, reality between developed countries and underdeveloped or developing countries? Yeah, there are definitely nuances around homelessness that are tied to sort of your country's economic base and the sort of social protection floors or systems that different countries have. Um, But it was really humbling for me um, when our research categorized Little Rock, Arkansas um, in the same sort of category as Shawnee, South Africa. Um, And so indicating that even though we are part of a really, we are a wealthy country, um, the way that we are handling and addressing homelessness here um, is is similar in, in certain aspects to what we are seeing in other parts of the world. Um, and so I think when we look to countries that are doing really well on the issue of homelessness, we, we see countries with um, you know, stronger social protection floors like Finland, like Denmark, as sort of the global bright spots in terms of meaningfully addressing homelessness. So we here in the U.S. have a lot to learn from other countries around the world. We're speaking with Lydia Stason, who is the executive director of the Institute for Global Homelessness and the chair of the Working Group to End Homelessness at the United Nations. Can I now take you to that other work? And so what's that working group working on? Yeah, so for the past couple of years, I've had the the honor of serving as the chair of the UN NGO Working Group to End Homelessness. This is a group of organizations similar to IGH who have a passion and a mission um, around uh, addressing homelessness. And so together um, for the past five years, we've been really working to bring homelessness onto the agenda of the United Nations. It historically has not been there. There have been conversations at the UN around affordable and adequate housing, but nothing specific to homelessness. And homelessness is a really um, complex issue. Um, Housing is certainly part of the answer to homelessness, but it's not the the complete answer to it. And so um, back in 2019, um, the the UN, as a result of some of the advocacy of this group, was able to pass its first resolution on homelessness. And since then, more attention has come to it. And just this past week, um, the Secretary of the United Nations just released the first ever ever report to the General Assembly on kind of the state of homelessness around the world, showing that, you know, there's a a significant amount of knowledge and evidence on the issue, um, but the problem keeps expanding. And so more efforts are needed um, from governments, from civil society, from, um, you know, the church to really begin to address these issues in a more meaningful way. So So it's an important moment for our our work and our advocacy. So Lydia, let me ask you kind of a unfair question. Okay. Let me ask you an unfair question. Um, Wouldn't the problem of homelessness be solved if everybody just had enough money? So poverty is obviously a huge driver of homelessness. And there's some very interesting research coming out lately around universal basic income. And if we just provide people living in poverty with more financial resources, um, would you know how does that impact the problem? And what we know for sure is, yes, certainly, um, higher levels of income help. Um, there are still other drivers and other complications um, around homelessness that, that would need to address. So I think if there was more financial resource, homelessness would certainly be t- decreased by a significant margin, but there would still likely be a certain percentage of people who would who would potentially be at risk of or experience homelessness. So, so let me ask you this question, and I know that you have a background in public policy. What what public policy would you recommend or public policies, let's say globally, that would impact global homelessness? Mm-hmm. Give me two or three. Yeah, I have. I was going to say I have several. Um, so I think one thing that we need to do and really think about is um, prevention. 
what policies, systems, structures, data sharing agreements are in place to help us identify people who are at risk of homelessness. Um, there's been some interesting work out of Los Angeles that can kind of um, uh, almost predict, if you will, certain people who, who might eventually end up homeless. And so how can we begin to move upstream to identify, assist, and support people before they become homeless? Um, so that's one sort of area of work. Then I think an another um, is that we do need to have um, definitions of, of homelessness and data collection around the number and types of people who are experiencing homelessness. A lot of countries kind of hide behind the fact that there isn't good data, um, because if there isn't good data, they won't necessarily be held accountable for, for addressing it. And so um, policies around that are really important. And then we need to continue to look to the evidence base around what types of housing programs and services really solve homelessness and make sure that we're investing in those types of programs versus other programs that have been shown to not be effective. So Lydia, let me let me recommend that your uh that your board give you a raise because <laughs> you did an incredible, wonderful job of of kind of letting our listeners know what that first part of the mission of research is is about okay we need to prevent upstream know who's likely we have to get better data we need evidence-based things but i'm going to push you a little bit to go to the second part of the mission of the institute what solves the problem mm -hmm. and again this is my little thing data has never solved the problem no so what how, what do we got to do to solve it yeah. So one thing that we know for sure from our research and our work with communities around the world is that political will to address the issue is one of the most critical things. And so, you know, people often say to me, what can I do about homelessness? People want to help. None of us want communities where there's homelessness. We want all of our neighbors to be thriving and housed. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that, that we can really do on it is to make sure that this issue is on our elected officials agenda, um, that they're hearing from us about it, that we're holding them accountable for taking action on, on this, on this topic. Um, and I do think that faith communities have a really important role to play in getting and keeping homelessness on the political agenda. So that's a huge component of what solves homelessness. So, um, so Lydia, if I speak from, from the perspective of, of New York, and I'm not sure that, Chicago, San Francisco are much different. They may well be. But I think in New York, at least domestically, when we kind of think about people who are homeless, who are on the streets, we oftentimes discover that there's some mental instability. There may be some substance abuse. There may be uh, other woundedness that the people experience. It's especially with single people, many times is more than merely poverty. Yes. There are other issues. Is that also, does your research tell you, is that also the experience globally? Very, very similar. I think the slices of the pie change kind of where you are in the world. But I would say for countries with developed economies, um, that is a very similar mix. In countries with developing economies, it does tend to be a lot more about pure poverty. Right. Um, and so so those those components are always there, but the percentages shift a little bit. Right. Um, and so again, when we think about what actually solves homelessness, a big part of it is tailored programs and services that meet that person where they are and with what they have going on, there's not a one size fits all. Everybody's, there may be common drivers, but everybody's journey into homelessness is a little bit different. We're all different, right? Our fingerprints are different. And so right. what you might need to overcome homelessness and become stable might be really different from what I need. And so we need these flexible systems that can help serve that person. I mean, you know, business has done this really well. I can take a quiz to know exactly what kind of, you know, multivitamins I should take. Um, and so why can we not do the same thing with the mix of programming and services that a person yeah. who's experiencing homelessness needs? So this is a little bit of a wonky question because uh, it's something that that 
interests me. Do you, how do you categorize um, internally displaced persons and refugees? Yeah, Um, this I think is such an important aspect of understanding homelessness as a global issue. We, you know, at IGH and with the definition that the United Nations is beginning to use, uses a very broad definition of homelessness. So one is um, literal street homelessness or living in places, you know, under highway overpasses, things like that. Um, Living in temporary or crisis accommodation, like a homeless shelter um, or a, a refugee, you know, center, things like that. And then third is living in inadequate or insecure housing. So if you think about sort of hidden homelessness, um, yeah. a lot of times that's where women and children's homelessness is because mamas are going to do whatever they can do to keep their kids off the street, but they're, you know, living with aunts or relatives or or kind of bouncing around, that's still a form of homelessness. Um, And so, you know, people who are migrants or refugees can certainly be in any of those categories of homelessness. Um, And certainly we see this here um, in Chicago, we have had um, thousands of of migrants sent to Chicago because Chicago was a welcoming um, city from different parts of the country over the past several months. And you know, we're not handling it very well here in the city. Um, and so people are are living for months on the floors of police stations. Um, and, you know, the latest plan is to establish winterized tents to hold between 500 and 1000 people um, who have come here. So so homelessness is a global issue. Mm-hmm. And we've always seen it as a local issue. But now it's, it's really we're not able to deny the fact that it, it, it does have global drivers. And so again, it's why we're so um, glad to see the United Nations bring some attention and awareness to this issue of it as a global um, problem that we need to come together and, and address globally. Lydia Stazen, thank you so much. But thank you even more for the work you're doing to tackle a very, very difficult and challenging problem. Lydia Stason, Executive Director of the Institute for Global Homelessness and Chair of the Working Group to End Homelessness at the United Nations. Thanks for being a guest on Just Love. We'll take a break. Just do it. Love God, your neighbor, yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Hey, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love this week. I hope you'll join us again next week. Just do it in the interim. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Our world will be more just and more compassionate. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.